Let's pray and we'll begin our time together in the book of Jude. Lord, thank you that we can be here today, that we can open your word and study it. I pray that as we just give a few minutes to overview the the book of Jude, that you would inform our minds and that you would also uh, inspire our hearts to study this book and to understand it, to believe uh, its truths and to obey its commands. Pray that you give me uh, help to explain it with clarity and that we would all be equipped to be better students of your word uh, and to be doers of what it says. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're not already there, we are at the second to last book of the New Testament, the second to last book of the Bible, the book of Jude. Next week will be Revelation. And then we'll be done with this series and a little teaser. What we're going to be doing uh, after that is starting a new series in our Sunday School Hour where we'll be dealing with biblical doctrine. And that will take at least 44 weeks or so, maybe a little bit more. Um, but we're going to take our time and work through the various doctrines of Scripture. Um, and Carrie's going to be helping teach that. Stephen's going to be helping teach that. Uh, I will be helping to teach that. We might add in some others along the way. Um, but that's going to be our next series. But today and next week, we're going to wrap up our, our series where we've been doing overviews of the books of the Bible. So Jude is among the shortest books of the New Testament. Um, and it is because of that, um, perhaps one of the most neglected. Uh, last week, we looked at Second and Third John, two other very small books uh, that clock in at less than 300 words. Jude is just a little bit longer than those two, but not much. And I think Jude is, is neglected not just because of its brevity, but also because of the subject matter. If you've read the book of Jude, you know that it deals with judgment, it deals with sin, and it deals with God's wrath, God's righteous wrath against human rebellion. Jude also deals with the seriousness of apostasy. Apostasy might not be a word that you use much in in day-to-day conversation. Apostasy means false teaching that denies the faith. So it's not just being incorrect on on a secondary matter. It's not just a mistaken interpretation on something that is of little consequence. Apostasy is a departure from the true faith. It would be heresy. It would be teaching that is so serious It corrupts the gospel, denies Christ, and leads to um, a a false faith that cannot provide salvation. So because Jude deals so much with sin and judgment and apostasy, that makes it kind of an uncomfortable read for some people. Um, In addition, Jude includes quotes from several non-biblical sources. Jude quotes from the Assumption of Moses and the first book of Enoch, And so that makes for some interpretive challenges. What is Jude doing quoting these books that aren't in the Bible but have some kind of weird things in them? What does that mean? So Jude can be kind of a challenge, but Jude does have a crucial message for the church today. And although Jude warns us of judgment and wrath and apostasy, it also offers us some of the most assuring and some of the most confidence-building statements in the whole New Testament. Jude, like the rest of Scripture, shows us that mercy and justice and the love of God are not mutually exclusive. God can warn of judgment. He can condemn apostasy and immorality and at the same time be God of mercy and grace and love. Uh, These are essential attributes of the God that we serve, and they're on display in the book of Jude. So who is the author? Who is this guy, Jude? Maybe some of you are thinking of a Beatles song right now in the back of your head. 
Jude was a popular name in that day. By the way, my youngest son, his middle name is Jude. I kind of like the name. Um, But Jude was a popular name in the period of the New Testament. And Jude is sort of the English pronunciation, the, the anglicized version of a Hebrew name. And the Hebrew form is Judah. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Israel. Judah um, gave birth to sons who had sons. He became a whole tribe. Judah was one of the 12 tribes, and it was the royal tribe, the tribe from which King David came, and also the tribe from which the Messiah was promised. So Judah uh, is very prominent. If you were here with us when we were preaching through the book of Genesis, you remember that Jacob, or Israel, on his deathbed in Egypt, pronounced the blessing on his sons. And he said that the scepter would not depart from Judah. Judah had prominence among all his brothers. Um, The Greek form, so the New Testament's written in Greek, and the the common language of the day was Greek. The Greek form of that Old Testament Hebrew name Judah is Judas. Judas. And the name Judas was popular among the Jews, not only because of the Old Testament figure Judah, and because of the tribe of Judah. All 12 of those names were popular names throughout history. Joseph, Benjamin, Judah, Levi, those were names that were in high circulation. But Judas became an even more popular name because in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a man named Judas Maccabees. I think I might have misspelled it uh, in the, I don't know if it's up there. Um, Judas Maccabees was a hero because he led a revolt. Um, He led a revolt, and I won't drag you into all of the history of that, Um, But because of that, he was somewhat of a a popular folk hero among the Jews. So the name Judas was common. But, as you all probably know, the name Judas fell out of popularity among Christians and among cultures that were influenced by Christianity because of a very famous or infamous Judas, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve, and as you know, he's the one who betrayed Christ. So although the Old Testament name Judah... Um, which we know as Judas in Greek or Jude in English, although it comes from the Hebrew word to praise. It's a very God-focused name. Um, Because of Judas Iscariot, that name to our ears has become synonymous with treachery and betrayal and even with satanic opposition to Christ. So I highly doubt that any of you have any friends or relatives named Judas. Uh, Maybe a Judah or a Jude, but no Judas. Um, But it's really all the same name. It's, it's the same thing, three forms of the same name. So there are several men named Judas or Jude in the New Testament. One is obviously Judas Iscariot, and we know that he did not write this book. Um, he committed suicide shortly after he betrayed Christ. Uh, so we know that he's not writing to the church um, later on after the ascension of Christ. There was another apostle who was also named Judas. And if you've read through uh, the Gospels, you'll see that at times they will refer to Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas, the son of James. Um, But that individual can also not be the author of this book. Um, If you look in Jude verse 1, this Jude is the brother of James, not the son of James. And the author of this letter is not an apostle. Uh, While Judas, the son of James, was an apostle, he was one of the twelve commissioned and sent by Christ. Um, The author of Jude, this letter, does not introduce himself as an apostle. He doesn't, like like Peter or like Paul, denote himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says he's a servant of Christ and the brother of James. And then if you look in verses 17 and 18 of Jude, 
He says, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, so he's referring to the apostles as they. He's not saying we. So he's not referring to himself as an apostle. So who is this Jude? If he's not Judas Iscariot, he's not the apostle Judas, the son of James. Well, who is he? Verse 1 tells us, this Judas was the brother of James, uh, referring to the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James, the author of the book of James, the James that we're going to be talking about uh, in about an hour and 15 minutes when we uh, have our our Sunday morning sermon. Um, So that means that this man, Jude, was also, like James, the half-brother of Jesus. If you remember from the book of James, James describes himself as the brother uh, of Christ, and so also is... um, is this man Jude. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, um, some people who are trying to figure out who Jesus is, they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James? That's the author of the book of James. And Joseph and Simon and Judas? Jesus had a half-brother named Judas or Jude. And that is who wrote this letter. And like His brother James, he did not believe in Jesus until sometime after the resurrection. And so now, although he is not an apostle, he serves Christ and the church. He does believe. Um, And in humility, he calls himself a slave of the Messiah that he once rejected. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. And he modestly explains his relationship to Jesus, which does give him a certain level of credibility and authority, but he explains it by naming James as his brother. So there's sort of degrees of separation here. He doesn't come out and say, I'm the brother of Jesus. He says, I'm the brother of James, and they all would have known James is the brother of Jesus. So this is a very modest way of introducing himself uh, in humility as one who serves Christ, but also as one who had a firsthand relationship with and knowledge of the Messiah himself. And so Jude does have uh, a certain level of credibility to write this letter. There's some unique features to the book of Jude um, that, that make it stand out. Um, Jude has a lot in common with another book in the New Testament, the book of Second Peter. I believe it was Stephen who gave us uh, the lesson on Second Peter. I would commend you to go back and listen to that because he dealt with um, some of the, the teaching and the content of that uh, in ways we won't have time to today. Um, but Jude has so much in common with Second Peter um, that it is, it is painfully obvious that, that they are connected in some way. Um, in fact, 20 of the 25 verses in Jude reflect content that is in Second Peter, using some of the same language, the same words, dealing with the same issues. Even the, the sequence and the structure in which they deal with these issues, they, they completely mirror each other. So the question that scholars often ask is, okay, who is quoting who? Is Jude quoting Peter, or is Peter quoting Jude, Or are both of them quoting some other source that we're not aware of? Um, I think, personally, that's the least likely option. Um, And scholars are divided as to who wrote first, whether Peter wrote his book first or whether Jude wrote his book first. And ultimately, it's not all that important because the Holy Spirit inspired both. And whether he inspired Peter to write something new and Jude to use that or vice versa, um, The fact is that this content is so important. We needed two books uh, to talk about it. We needed two different men writing to two different groups of people to emphasize these things because it's that important. And God in his wisdom has given us both. Um, But if you had to hold my feet to the fire and I had to take a guess, I think it makes the most sense that Jude, who is not an apostle, 
would use 2 Peter as a source rather than vice versa. Um, Also, I think that Peter probably wrote first because Peter writes of heresies that will arise. He speaks of them as future tense, that they will spring up, they will rise up from among you. And Jude talks about heresies or false teachers that are already on the scene. They're already here. So it it seems to me because of the relationship here, uh, because of the apostolic nature of Peter's book, it's likely that Jude wrote after uh, Peter did, but we can't be certain. And if we're wrong, it really doesn't affect anything. They're both still here um, and, and clearly belong to the New Testament. Um, as far as a date, um, if Jude wrote after Peter, uh, then it's probably sometime after 65 AD, but before 80 AD. So it's a really big um, date range because there's nothing in the book that gives us any sense of concrete current events. There's nothing to really help us nail down the date, um, but that's sort of a range that is acceptable sometime between 65 and 80 AD. Um, so that's a unique feature of Jude, uh, the fact that there's, he has so much in common with the book of Second Peter. In addition, Jude also makes frequent use of the Old Testament. That's another key feature of this book. He mentions events from the Old Testament, cities from the Old Testament, characters from the Old Testament. And he uses all of them as examples for his arguments. We'll see some of that later. Uh, Jude also seems to have, in his writing style, an affinity for triads or groups of threes. Um, And you'll notice this as you read through it. The way he describes himself um, is kind of comes in a threefold manner. And his readers, the the blessing he gives in verse 2, mercy, peace, and love. You see this grouping of three. His description of the apostates in verse 8 They rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority, blasting the glorious ones. He kind of has these these groups of of descriptions. Um, There's another unique feature in Jude. We mentioned it earlier, and that's that he uses non-canonical sources. The canon of Scripture, if you hear that term, canon means like a rule or a standard. So we have these tests of canonicity. Basically, what are the criteria for which books belong in the Bible and which books don't? And there are some writings, some letters, some books, ancient books, that do not meet these tests. They do not meet the standard, and so they do not belong to the canon of Scripture. Um, And things like um, the, the Book of Enoch and the Assumption of Moses, some of these apocryphal books, do not meet those tests. So what do we make of the fact that Jude uses... Um, um, in quotes from some of these books. Well, we need to understand as we read uh, Jude that this is not an endorsement of those writings as a whole. So just because Jude quotes it doesn't mean that that whole book is missing from the New Testament and that it should be read with the same level of trust and obedience as Scripture. Um, they're interesting to study and can be you know, kind of fun to read and it gives you an insight as to what people were saying and thinking in that day. But they're not biblical, they're not scriptural, and they should not be included in the Bible because they do not pass the basic tests that all the books in the Bible pass. What are some of those tests? I'll just give you sort of a representative list. Books that belong in scripture are books that are written by a recognized prophet or apostle, one of their close associates. So the book of the Assumption of Moses, um, the books of Enoch, they do not meet that standard. Um, another test would be their complete truthfulness, that every word in them is true. Every prophecy is true. Every doctrinal statement is true. Um, every historical statement is true. Uh, those books don't meet that test. Um, 
to be included in the canon of Scripture, um, a book or a letter has to uh, be faithful to what's previously accepted um, as Scripture. It has to agree with the rest of the Bible, simply put. Those books don't. There's some contradictions there. Um, another test of canonicity is if it's been confirmed by Christ or a prophet or an apostle. Um, so, for example, in the book of Luke, Jesus is confirming the truthfulness of the Old Testament. We have Peter saying that Paul's writings are, scripture, are scriptural. We have uh, different confirmations from, from people like that. We don't have that explicitly for the assumption of Moses or first Enoch. And then the other final test would be <clears throat> um, that, that writings be commonly accepted and used by the church throughout history, not just in one unique niche little community, but widely accepted by the churches, widely used by the church fathers. And those books, uh, The Assumption of Moses, First Enoch, and some of the other apocryphal books, they don't meet those tests. Um, in addition, you know, Jude, though he does quote from these books, um, he does not introduce them with any phrase like, it is written or some other formula that's customary when quoting Scripture. He's just simply pulling something out of them that is true, a true statement, um, on its own. And he's doing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so as Jude quotes it, that specific statement does become Scripture, because it's here. It's in Jude's writing, and it therefore carries the full weight of divine authority. Uh, and Jude's not the only one to do this, by the way. There are other biblical authors who utilize sources in their writing, and they quote uh, from, from, from other people. Uh, for example, Paul does this with the Greek philosopher. I believe it's Epimenides. I can't remember for sure. Um, but he quotes a Greek philosopher um, in part of his preaching, just as an illustration. Um, he does this. Uh, he quotes a Cretan proverb. He says, you know, one of your own says that Cretans are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And the saying, the saying is true. So he's quoting sort of a popular level prophet that's not biblical. So it, it's not unusual or unique um, it, once we start studying more widely to see that biblical authors can and do sometimes quote from non-biblical sources. Um, but that doesn't mean that those sources should be elevated to the level of Scripture. Is that clear? That's probably the biggest interpretive challenge in Jude, and I want to make sure we understand that. Um, so the purpose and theme of this book, what would that be? Very simply, his purpose is to warn against apostasy and to inspire faithfulness. <clears throat> he wants to warn people that they would be on guard, that they would not be deceived, that they would be aware. And he wants to inspire faithfulness, to urge them to defend the truth and to believe the truth, to build themselves up in the truth, to stay faithful to the revealed truth of God. That's his purpose. And it's an important message, isn't it? It's a necessary one. There is a battle for truth that the church must engage in. And Jude wants to make sure that his readers are aware and that they're engaged and that they're keeping their eyes on Christ. So he, he does this. He warns them and, and inspires them to faithfulness by, first of all, urging his readers to contend for the faith. We see that in verse 3. In verse 4, he warns them about the tactics of false teachers. Verses 5 through 16, he describes the judgment that's coming upon the apostates. He wants them to take this seriously and to know that God is going to deal with it. Um, he warns them and encourages them by reminding them of the apostolic warnings in verses 17 through 19. He tells us that the apostles told us that this was going to happen. I think that's a reference to 2 Peter. Remember what Peter said. He said, false prophets will arise up from among you. Um, he encourages them and warns them in verses 20 through 23 by exhorting them to spiritual growth and evangelism. 
And then finally, in verse 24 through 25, he assures them of God's protection and preservation. So this is his theme throughout, to warn them of false teaching and to inspire them and exhort them to faithfulness. So this man, Jude, is a man who saw a need, and he felt compelled to address it. He couldn't stay silent because he knows what is at stake. He exposes false teachers and their false teaching and their character, and he does this out of love for the truth and love for God's people. So what was the nature of this error? What is it that caused Jude to write this letter? What is it that he saw? Well, Jude does not fully explain their doctrinal error. You won't find him engaging doctrinally at a specific level the way you find Paul engaging in Galatians, for example, arguing through and exposing the emptiness of the actual teaching. But he does seem to just point out that it's false by, by looking at the fruit of their teaching. And the bad fruit of these false teachers was something that we call antinomianism. Big word. If you're taking notes, the definition of antinomianism uh, is very simply a perversion of God's grace. Anti means against. Namas means law. So against the law. So this is a key error. Uh, we have an opposite error. Um, called legalism, thinking that we have to keep the law in order to be accepted by God. And then if you swing the pendulum to the other side, antinomianism means that it really doesn't matter what you do. Because God is gracious, because he forgives sin, then do whatever you want. You can always ask for forgiveness later, and it really doesn't matter. So it's saying that there's no place for, for obedience and adherence to the law, that it's really unnecessary. Antinomianism. Um, This antinomianism is the bad fruit of what these apostates were teaching and promoting. And this is evident that this is Jude's concern because he condemns their behavior as ungodly. This is the fruit of their teaching. Look in verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, We see it in verse 15. Verse 15. uh, He said uh, that God is going to execute judgment on all. And to convict all the ungodly. Of all their deeds of ungodliness. That they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you pick up on the repetition there? Ungodliness. So this false teaching is producing ungodliness. These are, it's causing antinomianism to take root and, and to bear bad fruit in the church. Um, we see in verse 18, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Uh, there's more examples we could give. Um, but the basic reality seems to be that this ungodliness stems from the fact that according to verse 4, they have perverted the gospel of grace. That is the key error. They've perverted the grace of God into sensuality. Doctrine and behavior are inseparably linked. What we believe will influence how we behave. It's a guarantee. And we are in need of the same warnings today because there are some today who claim the name of Christ but who promote or excuse or justify or approve of immoral behavior. And that is a perversion of God's grace. 
And it's serious. It's serious. And Jude writes to warn us of it and to urge us to contend for the faith and to combat such false teaching that leads to corrupt, ungodly behavior. So let's give just a few minutes to sort of walk through an outline of the book. We'll try to move quickly here. The first section, if we kind of see the greeting in verses 1 and 2, the first section of of content and teaching is verses 3 and 4, and that is a warning about apostasy. Verses 3 and 4 is a warning of, of apostasy. Beloved, he says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have kept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This explains to us why Jude is writing. He tells us that he wanted to write a different kind of letter. He was eager to write to them a treatise on the gospel, to talk about our common salvation in Christ, and to reflect on the glory of God's grace. But the problem is these people are perverting God's grace. And so there's some business that needs to be taken care of. And he has this concern. He says that he finds it necessary, in verse 3, to write to them about contending for the faith contending for the faith. Now, what is the faith that he's referring to? This is not their faith. It's not a subjective trust in the truth. When he says the faith, he's referring rather to the body of truth that had been given to them. The faith that has been, verse 3, once for all delivered to the saints. So this is the objective faith, the faith. And it's not in process. It's not faith that's still being added to or fleshed out. It has been, once for all, delivered to the saints. So it doesn't need any improvement. It doesn't need any additions. It's there. We have everything we need in Christ and his gospel. This is the faith that has been delivered once and for all. So it's not their faith that he's that he's telling them to contend for. It's the faith. And right here, we find this phrase that is countercultural, that they are to uh, contend for the faith. See, there's a lot of people um, in the church today that are simply allergic to controversy or conflict when it comes to the teaching of Scripture, when it comes to doctrine. Because we're sort of afraid of what will happen if we stick our neck out for the truth. If you're like me, you like what's comfortable. And being passive as error slowly encroaches into the church is a lot more comfortable than confronting it. But let me clarify, we must contend for the faith. And there is a good and righteous conflict we must engage in. Um, Jude's not talking here about interpersonal conflict. This isn't about somebody who has an issue with somebody else. This conflict is specifically in regards to the faith, to the truth that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. So this isn't about egos. This isn't about uh, necessarily relationships or things that are going on in that context. This has to do with doctrine. This is doctrinal contention that he is calling us to. And Jude asserts that this truth is worth fighting for. In fact, he says we must fight for it. It is necessary. And this letter that Jude writes, this is his contribution to the fight. This is his counterpunch to 
what the false teachers are doing and saying. So there's been good examples of contending for the faith all throughout church history. We have it right here in the New Testament. Paul and Peter and Jude and John. These men are contending for the faith by writing to expose error and to affirm and explain the truth. Um, In the early season of the church, early church creeds are the result of those early church leaders refuting error and planting a flag in the ground for doctrines like the deity of Christ and the Trinity and other central truths of the faith. That's why they had those councils and those creeds where they got together and they they were combating error. Um, Everything that's in our doctrinal statement... Those specific, the specific language that we have is historical language that's there because at some point, somebody had to clarify what we don't mean and what we do mean when we say Jesus is the Son of God or we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. At some point, somebody had to get down in and, and roll up their sleeves and get dirty and really explain not this, but this. This is false. This is true. So, so this has happened throughout church history. Uh, we see it happening during the time of the Reformation. Uh, In the 1500s, you had men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and many others uh, who took a stand for the truth and combated the unbiblical teachings that were coming out of Rome, the Roman church. Even in our day and age, there are battles and have been battles over inerrancy, over the truth of the gospel, battles, battles over truth. And until Jesus comes back, those battles will continue. Those guys who've gone before us, the early church fathers, the reformers, the people whose shoulders we stand on, they fought their battles, but we have to fight ours. It's our turn to carry the baton, to pick up the shield and the sword, and to contend for the faith. And it's going to keep happening until Jesus comes back, because error is not going to ever rest. Satan never rests, and so we have to be on guard Verse 4 lays out why it was necessary in their day. He points out who is in the church. He says certain people, certain people have crept in. They are in the church, and they are perverting the grace of God. He points out to how they got there. He says they crept in. They didn't come in one day and stand up in the middle of a sermon and interrupt and hold up a big sign and start saying, you should instead believe this false doctrine. No, it was subtle, it was slow, it was a game of inches. They crept in unnoticed, and he points out what they are doing. They're perverting the grace of God and denying Christ, denying Christ. So it's serious, and that's really what he wants to to show us in verses 3 through 4, is this warning about apostasy. It's there, and they need to contend against it. Verses 5 through 7, he gives some historical examples of apostasy. Um, Three examples Uh, The generation in the wilderness, this is the Israelites who were rescued from slavery in Egypt, Uh, the angels who fell with Satan, Um, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. So three examples. I think his point here is this. Lest you think that this is a new thing, that apostasy creeps in, and that there's judgment on apostasy, Um, lest you think that's new, Jude reminds us there's always been people like this. That's always been the case, and it always leads to judgment. That generation in the wilderness experienced judgment. Some of them were executed. If you read what happened um, when Aaron um, claimed to, to throw all that gold into the fire and said that this calf sort of just walked out, and there was this big apostasy that happened, false worship where people turned their backs on God. 
Um, There was judgment. There was a lot of people executed that day. There were others throughout those 40 years in the wilderness who died by plague or died by divine fire that came out of the tabernacle or got swallowed up by the ground when it opened up or were bit by poisonous serpents. Some of them just died of old age because God kept them out there in the wilderness until they all died off. But eventually they all died specifically because of their unbelief. Look in verse 5. Those who did not believe were those who were destroyed. Apostasy is unbelief. He then refers to the angels who fell with Satan, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Um, We don't have time to really get too deep into this. There might be a reference here. Um, to the sons of God who intermarried with the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. That's one uh, very likely interpretation. Um, There's others as well. But his point here is that apostasy, whether it's committed by human beings or angels, is rebellion. So it's unbelief if we look at what happened in the wilderness. It's rebellion if we think about what happened with the angels. They did not stay within their own position of authority, but left, and they're going to be judged. And then he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys know that story. A judgment in the past that should serve as a warning. He says that that these two cities, because of their sexual immorality and unnatural desire, were judged, and they were judged as an example for us. Apostasy is unbelief. It's rebellion, and it it incurs the wrath of God. Jude points this out for us. These three examples illustrate the seriousness of apostasy, and they illustrate the seriousness of its consequences. So Jude's point is kind of this. If anyone wants to downplay this and you think I'm just an alarmist, read the Old Testament. This has been happening, and God always responds with judgment. So we need to take it serious. Verses 8 through 16, he moves on from uh, historical examples of of apostasy to a description of these current apostates. Um, He brings the spotlight off the Old Testament to their current situation. Um, He says, yet in like manner. So verse 8, he has this connection. Just like the generation in the wilderness, just like the rebellious angels, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, these people also, he connects the dots and says, they're like them, relying on their dreams, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming the glorious ones. Um, He points out this connection. He calls out their actions in verses 8 through 11. He says what they're doing. They're blaspheming. Um, Verse 10 says they're blaspheming all that they do not understand. And they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. He says they don't have spiritual understanding. They're operating on the basis of their own sinful nature. And he says, woe to them. By the way, verse 9, that explanation about Michael contending with the devil and disputing about the body of Moses, that's the reference to the assumption of Moses. So that phrase about Michael, the archangel, um, contending with the devil over the body of Moses, that's not something that we find in the Old Testament. That's something that comes from a different source. Um, And it's obviously a tradition Um, sort of an oral history that was written down in this book, The Assumption of Moses, that is in fact true because he quotes it here as being true. Um, But that's that one of those references that can be kind of hard to understand. Um, In the Old Testament, it simply tells us that God took Moses and buried him where nobody knows where, somewhere in the mountains. That's all we know. Uh, This gives us a little more insight into some of the things that 
went on during that process. Um, but what Jude is doing here is calling out the actions of the unbelievers. That whole thing is meant to show that these people are blasphemous. Um, they're blaspheming in ways they're de- saying and doing things that even Michael the archangel didn't presume to do. Um, he describes in verse 11 as walking in the way of Cain and abandoning themselves for the sake of gain. Uh, he mentions Balaam's error and Korah's rebellion, two different Old Testament references there. Balaam was a false prophet who attempted to curse the Israelites um, for a payout. He was corrupt. Korah's rebellion were people who rose up in the wilderness and rebelled against Moses' authority and said, we think we'd do a better job of being in charge than you would. And God opened up the ground and swallowed them. Um, judgment. He's saying, this is what these people are like. They, they are uh, blasphemous. They're corrupt and seeking gain. They're rebellious and do not recognize God's established authority in the church. He describes what they're doing. But then he also exposes their character. Not just what they're doing, but who they are. Their character, verses 12 through 13. Uh, he says, they are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Uh, a hidden reef is dangerous. If you're a sailor and you don't know that there's rocks right underneath the surface... You're in big danger because those rocks can wreck your ship. He says, these people are like that. Hidden reefs at your love feasts. They're taking communion with you, but they are a threat to the church. He says, they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. I think that's a reference to uh, the book of Ezekiel where God condemns um, the priests who were supposed to be shepherding the flock of Israel, but instead were feeding on the sheep, exploiting the church. Uh, is what these people are doing. He says they're waterless clouds, clouds that come when you need rain, but they don't give you what you need. These people claim to come bringing truth, but they're empty. Um, He says that they are swept along by winds. They're unstable. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Makes us think of what Jesus did to that fig tree that had no fruit on it. He cursed it. Makes me think of what Jesus said about false teachers who will arise. He said, they will be like wolves wearing sheep's clothing. But he says, you will know them by their what? By their fruit. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, these people are fruitless trees. These are the false teachers Jesus warned us of. They are wild waves at sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved forever. He describes them here as shooting stars. They, they come across the scene and have all this light, but their destination is darkness and, and, and futility. Uh, so he exposes their character. In verses 14 and 15, he declares their judgment. He says, here's what's going to happen. Uh, he says, it was about these that Enoch, and here he references uh, first Enoch, that book. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment Uh, to execute judgment upon them. Um, He says in verse 16, uh, condemning their pride that they are grumblers, malcontents, following their sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So that's a pretty comprehensive description of these apostates. He calls out their actions, their character, the judgment that's coming upon them, and their pride. So just in case it's unclear to any of Jude's readers... Um, what these apostates are like or why it is that Judas is concerned with them. He pretty much lays it out for us. And then he finally gives uh, the readers here what are their duties in the face of this apostasy. 
Um, how are they to respond? And here's where he gets very, very pastoral and encouraging. In verse 17 uh, through 19, he says, here's your duties to the scripture. He says, but you, so in contrast to all these false teachers, in contrast to the apostates, their character, their false doctrine, perverting the grace of God, he says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, probably a reference to Second Peter there. They said to you that in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. They have a responsibility to the scriptures to build themselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. He says this faith, Referring back, I think, to what he mentioned in verse 3, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He says, even though these people are like this and they're saying these things and doing these things, they're destined for judgment. You, in contrast to them, build yourselves up in the faith. Keep pressing in to know God and to know his truth, to understand his word, to sink your roots deeply into those truths. Build yourselves up in the faith. And then he describes their responsibility Uh, To others, in verses 22 through 23, he says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I think there's a very good distinction here made in the book of Jude between two types of people. Two types of people that you may look at and say they're in error. There are the deceivers, but then there's also those who have been deceived. Those are two different types of people. Some people know what they're doing, and they have an agenda, and they're actively seeking to deceive other people. There's others who have simply been fooled, and they've been deceived. And maybe they've been tempted to doubt the truth that's been revealed. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. There are some people who read the book of Jude and they see this verse that we are to contend for the faith. And so they go out into the church with a chainsaw, as it were, and to any error that they find, they crank that baby up. But sometimes we need a scalpel instead of the chainsaw. Sometimes we need to show mercy to those who are doubting. And rather than pummeling them with the truth, rather than rebuking them, rather than crushing them with an avalanche of true doctrine, we need to show some mercy and say, listen, I love you, I care about you, and I think you've been deceived. And, and I have compassion upon you, and that's why I want to show you a better way. That's why I want you to understand the truth. That's why I want to expose the error of some of the things that you're entertaining and considering. Um, we need to show mercy and, and this, this engagement with people who are deceived is actually a rescue mission. Verse 23, our contending for the faith sometimes might look like a boxer landing blows, but sometimes our contending for the faith will look more like a lifeguard. He says, snatch them, or, or a firefighter, snatch them out of the fire. Snatch them out of the fire. When we contend for the faith, when we expose error, we're trying to help people. We're trying to rescue them from damning doctrine that perverts the grace of God and leads to judgment. It is a rescue operation, not just a contest in who's right. 
Not just an exercise in verbal sparring and, and getting our kicks out of being argumentative. No, it's a merciful, compassionate desire to rescue people from false teaching. And he says that as we do this, we do this with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. As we engage this error, we're going to get up close and personal with ungodliness and with sin. He says we need to make sure we don't become complacent towards that. We need to do this in the fear of God, maintaining our hatred for sin, even as we seek to show mercy and and to help people who are trapped in it. Um, We've gone long, but I just want to end with his conclusion. The conclusion here ties in his greeting. And if you notice, we sort of skipped through verses 1 and 2. But if you read this book, there's a beautiful bookend. Verses 1 and 2, verses 24 and 25, kind of bring together the same focus. And that's a confident trust in God. The book ends with the same note on which it started. He opened in verse 1 with his personal introduction and then a reassurance to them. And if you're hearing about God's judgment and the danger of apostasy and the urgency of this rescue mission, you might get a little bit insecure. You might become concerned. You might become afraid. But notice how he opened the book, verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. There's grounds for confidence and assurance. We are called by God, loved by him, kept by him for Christ. And he says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. He started off with a statement of confidence. Kind of like uh, Second and Third John. He's not wringing his hands. Uh, he's not afraid. He knows who God is. And then he ends with the same confidence. Verse 24 and 25, perhaps the most famous benediction or blessing in the New Testament. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I'll just say this, and then we'll be done. Our efforts to contend for the truth, as we engage in this fight, we must never become so preoccupied with sniffing out error and refuting false teaching that we forget God in the process. Our hope is not in our powers of discernment to keep us to the end. Our hope is that he will keep us to the end. Our goal is not simply to be right, but to glorify God, the God who called us and loved us and keeps us. And our confidence is that he will overcome. He will keep us. He will triumph. And he will establish his kingdom with dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So be encouraged, and I hope you've been um, encouraged to contend for the faith and to keep your eyes on Christ. You are dismissed.